Hello, this is Dan Lina. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. My guests today are Mark Lordson and Quentin Stainhouse. Mark is president of Capstone Practice Systems. Capstone builds custom document drafting systems for law firms, legal departments, and other organizations, delivers training for users and developers, and advises organizations on software selection and project design. Quentin is a senior housing attorney and network administrator at Greater Boston Legal Services. Quentin practices law and represents low-income tenants while also being responsible for IT systems administrations at Greater Boston Legal Services. Quentin also develops open-source, user-facing legal technology. And in addition to developing legal technology, Mark and Quentin last year drafted a research paper about evaluating the legal advice provided by legal technology tools entitled Substantive Legal Software Quality, A Gathering Storm. And that's the topic for today's show, Evaluating Legal Technology Applications. Mark and Quentin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Well, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsor, Logical, instant discovery software for modern legal teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at just $250 per matter per month. Create your free account anytime at logical.com slash LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash LTN. And we also want to thank our sponsor, Headnote. Headnote helps lawyers get paid faster with their compliant e-payments and account receivables automation platform. To learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently, visit them at headnote.com. That's headnote.com. Okay, well, Mark and Quentin, before we jump in, I just want to give you each a little bit of an opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Mark, you want to go ahead and please kick things off? Sure, happy to do so, Dan. I have a checkered past. I've been a Massachusetts (laughs) lawyer for over 40 years. But most of that time, I've not been practicing. I've been doing other crazy things. I began life as a clinical teacher and a legal aid lawyer. And then I got diverted into technology way back in the 1980s. So that's been my main focus the last couple decades is building software, helping people learn how to do that. And in recent years, I've been also moonlighting as a law professor, teaching courses in which students actually build these kinds of applications as part of their their coursework. Great. Quentin. So I'm one of those computer programmers who went to law school. I got a degree in in logic and computation from Carnegie Mellon University, but my real passion at that time was social justice. I probably started about a million different, or was a member of a million different social justice organizations. And that prompted me to head to law school. That was what I thought was the best way to further my goals in that area. And I started my legal career at Greater Boston Legal Services. So I fell back into software development kind of by accident after that. In the financial crisis, I volunteered to start participating in our IT team. I still kept my legal hat as well and kind of added that second one. And it took a few years for me to see the connection between the IT work that I was doing, the software development I was doing to kind of help make those systems more efficient and our client-facing work. But when I did, it really just makes a lot of sense. Expert systems can kind of fill that gap in legal aid where we're we're turning away two-thirds of our clients who can't get help who actually come into our office and and request it. But there are a lot of people who can't even make it to our offices because they don't have money to pay for the bus fare. They don't have the ability to take time off from work or they don't have childcare or they have disabilities that make it hard for them to to reach us. And technology is a way that we can reach those people that we really can't serve directly. Well, I'm excited to have you both as, as my guests today. You're both doing some really interesting work. 
And we're going to try to focus, narrow the focus just a little bit, although it's a really broad area, to evaluating legal technology applications. And I mentioned the article that you wrote, Mark and Quentin. And, you know, Mark, maybe you want to kick us off and just talk about, uh, you know, what was it that prompted you to write this article about the quality of, of legal applications? Sure. I think it was, it was really the intersection of the things Quentin just mentioned, which is, you know, the, the, the possibilities we have nowadays to express legal knowledge in software and the yawning gap between what people need in the world for legal help and what they get. And so um, there's this organization called the International Association for Artificial Intelligence and Law that's been operative for over 30 years. They have a conference every two years. And it's really the main gathering place where folks who are into that field trade ideas and discuss their latest research. So it occurred to us that uh, we should really inject this, this topic into that community. How can we assess and evaluate these kinds of tools that uh, folks like us are inflicting on the world in terms of their quality, in terms of their substantive quality, their correctness? And it was, it was meant as a way to you know, organize our thoughts, cover the landscape of what's happening in the world, and to try to enlist the community of AI and law researchers in this quest to improve the quality of that kind of software. So that was our, that was our effort. We were lucky enough to get the paper accepted and uh, Quentin presented it at the conference up in Montreal last summer. How did that go, Quentin? What about for you? Why, why did you think it was important to write this and what was the reception when you presented this paper? It was a really good reception, I think. People were very interested in the topic. It's a group of a lot of computer science researchers who I think don't always get to see the application of their work. So they were really excited to see us talk about how we were using these apps to solve real world problems for people. People had a lot of interesting ideas. I mean, I, I certainly learned a lot and I was kind of fascinated to see how many big ideas that I hadn't run into as a practitioner were bubbling around in the computer science and AI community. I hope to have more synergy there and, and take more of it back into practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's exciting to see more, more and more of this happening. Now, just to be clear, too, what we're talking about in the article, you're talking mostly about the quality of rules-driven systems like document automation and expert systems. Quentin, do you want to kind of give us some examples of the software tools that you, you're talking about in this article and in this area? There are dozens of these tools that build these apps, and a lot of them are aimed at people like us who are lawyers who who kind of have decided to, I want to automate some part of my own work. So they're unique in that a lot of them are built around kind of low code expectations. Hotdocs is a major player in this area and has been for a long time. Contract Express. On the more expert system side of things than document automation, there's Neota Logic and DocAssemble is an open source platform that, that I use a lot in, in my work. Those are kind of some of the big players. Okay. Well, you know, Mark, I know that you're also doing work in the legal aid space with your class, but then also for law firms and legal departments. And, you know, one of the things I'd like to see more in these discussions is sometimes we kind of silo legal aid projects versus law firm and legal department. I mean, to me, it seems like more and more of these questions are the same ones, right? And so if we have principles for quality and, and uh, engineering these and, and creating these applications, can't we come up with some generalized principles, at least for starting point, that would really kind of apply across this whole space that we could be working together on? Yeah, I think so. And that's definitely part of my motivation, because like you say, I, I do sort of straddle the worlds of, of private practice, law firms and departments and their technologies and the kind of public facing legal aid nonprofit world. 
And the, the challenges are similar. I mean, and again, there's a whole raft of different criteria by which you can judge these things in terms of their accessibility and usability. This article really tried to focus on the narrower question of correctness, of substantive quality. It's the knowledge we're communicating, is the know-how a particular application is expressing true. Is it correct? Is it reasonably accurate about how the legal world works? And that applies whether you're in a law firm or whether you're a self-represented litigant, you know, in California trying to defend against an eviction. So the issues cross over. As you mentioned, Dan, there are there are metrics that are used in other legal software, other kinds of software, recall, precision, et cetera. Those are critical, but those really go to, you know, how well a particular piece of software does its job. For us, the focus of this article was how well does the particular piece of software communicate the know-how that the user needs in a way they understand. And that is a vast problem <laughs> in my mm-hmm. experience. And it's, it's a problem both in, in public sectors and in private uh, practice contexts. Yeah, well, I think that, I mean, this is something I hear more and more. Now, when I talk about technology and its ability to prove access to legal services for everyone and particularly to, to narrow the, the justice gap, I sometimes will, people will say, well, wait a second, how do you know that this technology tool is actually helping people? And, and it's an important question, yeah. but yet at the same time, sure. how do we know when lawyers are doing work that that work, like how do we assess the quality of that work? And, you know, I mean, it raises a question of, of what's the right baseline. Well, there's two questions there in my mind, I guess, do we need to also start doing a better job of evaluating the work that human lawyers do? And then what's the right baseline for these tools? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think there's the good and bad thing about technology is that we're automating something so we can see how it performs in the same circumstances again and again. And that can be either really well or really poorly. So you can really replicate a bad outcome over and over, or you could have a really good outcome that comes out that way. And lawyers, of course, are a lot more variable from from day to day. The advice that they give might be very different, certainly as time changes. And if you're looking at a large pool of lawyers, you're going to feel that there are a lot of different answers to the same question. The benefit of a system like an expert system is you can look at the whole system at once and get a sense of what it's doing. It's really hard, a lot harder to do that with a live person. And hopefully you can apply that kind of analysis to see, is it actually giving the right advice? Is it helping someone in the right way? Yeah, well, I think that's a really important point is that these tools allow us, we can run tests, right? We can do the exact thing you're at, you're advocating for, even when it does get into the realm of using neural networks and things like that. People will complain frequently, well, it's a black box. We don't know what it's doing, but it's like, there are ways you can still even test these black boxes and run a bunch of counterfactuals through them, things like that. You know, I, I do think though, that one of the things we, one of the challenges we run into in this space is, is this kind of raises the point that if you, if you want to create some of these tools, you need to try to figure out uh, if the lawyers are doing it in a hundred different ways and you want to try to put a document automation tool in place or create an expert system. I mean, how, how do you go through this process of kind of getting people on the same page on, on like, this is a defensible way to handle these matters consistently. I mean, Mark, I'm sure you've dealt with that many times in, in, in many different types of organizations. Yeah, it's a real, it's a perennial challenge in, in a private law firms. Very often you have to lock people in, in a room for, days in order to get agreement about where to put the commas and the spaces and the tabs and documents. And I think it's it, we, we presently have so much diversity in how people practice, even within the same organization. When you try to subs, you know, substantively automate it, build an expert system or a document assembly system that kind of expresses the best practices of a, of a group, 
you surface all those variabilities. And it's a sociological challenge as well as a technical one. That was not much of an answer, but I think I'm just nodding to you, Dan, to say that that's a, that's a key challenge we face both in the private practice world and in the legal aid, public-facing access to justice world. Yeah, and I, to me, the key point of recognizing that we can assess things for their quality, we can assess software, we can also assess the things humans do, well, then that means that we can look at all that variance and we can start asking and gathering data. It's an empirical question, which of these activities produce are, are, are high quality, produce value, produce better results, things like that, right? We, we can test these things just like we can, we can test the software that we're developing in tandem. Yeah, I think you're right. These things are accessible. I mean, in some ways, they're more easily accessible in e-discovery and context where you have a discrete task and you have, you know, well-understood metrics. In the world of, of substantive software, where you're trying to communicate knowledge about very complex legal situations, there are at least two problems. One is you don't know the impact it's going to have in the actual real world when the litigant or the lawyer goes forth and does something. And secondly, there's such a combinatorial explosion of possibilities in the software as to what it can do under different answer scenarios that it's almost impossible to exhaustively check everything. And that was really one of our, one of our themes was how do, you, how do you wrestle with that problem? You've got this billions of possibilities about a way a particular software can respond to a user. How can we be sure that in most of those situations, if not all, it actually does the right thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so... Having read your article and then we chatted a little bit beforehand, I guess what I'd like to do is try to, as much as we can in the, in the short time we have together, help our listeners start thinking about a framework or what, you know, what, for, for how they might go through this process. And you know, why don't we start about, I mean, Quentin, if you can talk with us a little bit about, I mean, how might you classify the different types of errors that we, we think we, we might see in legal applications? Because I think the first thing we have to do is think about what are the bad outcomes, you know, where, where could the errors be? And then we can start thinking about what are the countermeasures to try to prevent them? Sure. So we've kind of found that there was a framework we could use to talk about substantive errors, because obviously there are errors that have to do with bugs. Your software application crashes. It doesn't do anything. But then there's all kinds of substantive errors that you can run into. And I think that First of all, there's just being plain old wrong, giving the wrong advice that doesn't actually fit what the law says. You can be unclear. Your application might be used in the wrong way, the wrong circumstance. So it's right advice for a different circumstance than the user actually really has. And it can be obsolete. And that's a problem of maintenance. And one of the things that we realized and, and really thought through as we were working on this paper, thinking through our own experiences, that that lack of clarity is a problem you have to zoom in on a little bit because something can be unclear both because... It just is hard to read or hard to understand. And it's what is on the page. And sometimes it's what's not on the page that can create some misimpressions with a user. They might think that your system can do a lot more than it really can do. They don't understand the scope and the limits of, of what it's doing. And that can lead them in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think it's useful to think, at least in terms of two main categories. One is the interface it's presenting to the user. What questions are being asked? What guidance is being given? And secondly, the outputs, you know, what, what documents are being generated, what customized advice might be emitted at the end. And both of those can be problematic, right? It can, it can fail to ask a question which it needs to know, or a, a human lawyer would need to know in order to give a good answer. Or it could ask a question that's irrelevant and, and convey this impression to the user. So it's, it's got these kind of layers, the, the core of what, what is the quality of the content being communicated? And then secondarily, what is the likelihood of the user actually properly understanding that, that content? 
so that, you know, it ends up in their head in a way that gets them to where they want to go. And it's, I keep saying this, but it's a really numbingly complex problem that I think we only, we only sort of touched on the, on the outer limits of at the moment. And, and so we should just probably clarify again, too, that this narrow focus on substantive quality, you're not really talking about like the, the UX design, for example, although that could have some yeah. interplay, right? So just went in a, a little bit more, maybe just briefly on that, about talking about that other kind of design that goes into uh, putting these together and how that could affect substantive quality. Sure. So like the app that I spent the most time building at Greater Boston Legal Services is covers about uh, probably almost 300 questions. So I found a lot in the analytics that I've learned from looking at where people kind of stop and give up in the interview. Mm-hmm. I can see like where they, which screen they ended on if they didn't finish it. I think that the order of questions, that's one part of UX. But how, what's the process that you're guiding someone through? Where, where are you presenting questions and what, what time? That's something that makes a big difference on how successful someone is in, in using it. So I, I definitely would classify that, those kind of user experience questions as part of the substantive quality of the application. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, the user experience aspects are critical uh, for all kinds of reasons. Appropriately, we, we focus on design. How do we, how do we construct you know, an interactive experience for a user that is, is pleasant and effective. But in some ways, this whole question of correctness is orthogonal to that. How do we, you know, not only do that, which is hard enough, <laughs> but make sure that what we're saying in the application, what we're implying by what we ask and how we ask it also is correct. Sort of this double-headed challenge to do both, and neither are more important than the other, but they're both critical. Well, this is all really interesting, Mark and Quentin. What we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsors. And then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about best practices for building high quality software, a little bit about lawyer ethics as well. And then we'll kind of talk about how we need to be training lawyers for the 21st century. So let's hear a message from our sponsor. Hey, law firms, getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Ten years ago, e-discovery meant lawyers packed into a basement fumbling with complex, slow software, wondering where their lives had gone wrong. Today, much of that frustration remains, but fortunately, there's Logical. Not e-discovery, but instant discovery. Logical's intuitive cloud-based software makes document search and review easy, fast, and affordable. It's time to get out of the basement. Create a free account instantly, any time of day, at logical.com forward slash LTN. That's logic with a K. C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. We're with Mark Lortzen, president of Capstone Practice Systems, and Quentin Stainhouse, senior housing attorney and network administrator at Greater Boston Legal Services. So Quentin and Mark, we've been talking a little bit about, about your paper, about substantive legal legal applications, the substantive quality of legal applications. Before we go any further, Mark, why don't you tell us where our listeners could find that paper, just so we make sure we have that in the show. Well, you can find it in two places. One, you can find it in the Proceedings of the International Conference of AI and Law, but if you don't want to buy that or get it, you can go to the Capstone 
practice.com website, and there's a section called PDFs, and I believe it's at the bottom of the list of PDFs you can download for free and read our timeless wisdom. All right, so let's jump in now and talk a little bit, Quentin and Mark, and, and we could devote a whole day, if not much more to this, but I mean, what would you tell our audience? What are the, some of the things that you've learned? And, and as you're developing this body of literature, what do you think ought to be our, our best practices so that we can improve the quality of, of the legal applications that we're building? So I, I think one of the biggest areas of interest for me is this idea of translating law to code and back. So you have your expert that you're working with closely, who might not, and you have a developer. Sometimes those are the same person, sometimes they're different people. And you have to have some systems in place to really be able to do that effectively. One approach that I think is interesting is to, to write out explicit decision tables. Those are kind of a first class object in things like Neota logic. Um, you can use them with DocAssemble as well. But even if you don't use those explicitly and they're not actually the logic engine of your software tool, if you've d- taken that process and you have like a kind of an algorithm for going back and forth, that's something that might be helpful. There are other techniques along those lines too, but thinking about that as the key issue, I think is really helpful. Like how am I doing that translation process? Yeah, I would add, I think as a, as a kind of a key best practice is, is regarding these, these efforts, these projects to build these tools as genuine projects that need to be managed and you know, begin with the end in mind, uh, mm-hmm. involve people who, who have had prior experience doing them, because as Quentin says, you often have this mixture of domain experts who don't know much about technology, and perhaps some technology experts who don't know much about the domain of law, and getting them in the same context working together is always a challenge. Sometimes you just need somebody who really knocks heads together from a project management point of view to make the system come out reasonably well. One kind of interesting model on the development-only side is in Python, there's this living document called PEP8, which kind of lays out the standards and techniques for developing a good Python application, like one that looks good and is readable. And when you start to follow and develop standards like that, it's easier for someone to jump in and help with a project that might take over, or you as the developer to know what you were doing three months ago when you wrote this section that you've completely forgotten what it does. So having standards is, is really important. And I think we have to start to develop those in the legal software development community. And we can learn a lot from the lessons that the software, the wider software industry has given us. I think a, a critical point is, which I think is we find in other software development applications is finding some method to externalize the content, the knowledge you want to express in your software. So don't, don't entirely put it into code, but have some external representation, some sort of a decision tree or a table or some way to capture the rules that you're trying to effectuate in your code external to the code you're building so you can test it against that framework. You guys make what I think is a good point is that we ought to be developing some best practices and principles for the the legal space. But as you also noted there, I mean, a lot of this is, is just stuff for good practices of software development. What part of this do you think is maybe somewhat of a unique question for laws, but particularly thinking about the substantive question? I mean, you know, what kind of additional principles do we need and, and, and how should we be going about developing them? How do we get more people engaged in this conversation? So we've kind of have talked about some of the mitigation strategies that are important in the paper. And we had kind of a reprise at the Innovations and Technology Conference as well. We got some really great expertise from people in Michigan and uh, Neodologic to, to add into that. And I'm just looking at that list now. And I think some of the things that are a little unique to substantive quality have to do with having clear scope limits. 
And then there's this also this other aspect, which is when someone's using an expert system, they treat it a lot different than they do something like a form book, right? They, they're going to read a form and, and they know that there's some limit to their understanding of, of the, what they're reading. And then they try to apply it to their situation. They know that there can be flaws in that process. But when something is interactive and it's talking back and forth to them, that's a little harder to see. So I think having some sense of attribution, discussions of and disclaimers and cautions that help the user to understand that this is not an oracle, right? I mean, there's some, there's some limits to what the computer is doing can help set expectations correctly. And that's a little unique to the substantive context. Mark, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I think I mean I think a, a basic point is we're we're in this new phase of opportunity and danger, right? Where we have we have enormous possibilities of of communicating legal knowledge and helping people deal with legal situations, whether they're self-representing litigants or associates at a big firm. But there's the correlative danger of the content being over relied upon and and accepted non-critically. So you asked how do we how do we improve this generally? I think getting more people to get involved in the various events and activities in this space. There's international conferences. There's the Innovations in Technology Conference. The Legal Services Corporation produces each year. There's the Subtech Conference that's happening in Nashville this summer. So there's plenty of opportunities. And of course, there's the Twitter watering hole. I mean, anybody who's interested in this space can probably quickly find fellow travelers. And there's a vast literature that's emerging I just think it's a matter of getting engaged and, and joining enthusiastically in this uh, in this new world. Yeah, well, it's great to see that the work you guys are already doing, and I know I'm sure you probably plan to bring some of this to Subtech this summer. I know this is some of the stuff that we're doing here at Northwestern in connection with our Law and Technology Initiative. So there's a lot of work I, I sense to be to be done in this space. So I'm excited to to see the work that you're doing. And let's transition just a little bit in the thinking about uh, what about lawyer ethics and AI, right? I mean, how do we, I mean, what are the things that are kind of top of mind for you when you're thinking about, I mean, we're not just developing software and even thinking about the getting it right in the substantive side, but in the background, we have duty of competence, duty to supervise, duty to communicate to the client, confidentiality in the private world, thinking about reasonable fee questions and, and being sure we use technology when appropriate. I mean, what would you say maybe are kind of top of mind as far as, as, as thinking, gee, okay, well, we, we also have to think about the, the lawyer ethics questions here as well. Mm, that's, a, that's a big, big topic, Dan, and I'm sure Quentin <laughs> is, is scratching his head like I am. I mean, my first reaction is we need to be sensitive to the fact that some of this stuff happens in the context of practice where, where a lawyer is engaged professionally representing clients and the whole panoply of ethical expectations apply, right? Confidentiality, zealousness, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I think in that world, there's no question, but that uh, an effective lawyer in the modern economy needs to understand the possibilities and the dangers of technology. And unless they do, they run the risk of, of practicing in a malpracticing way. But there's also this side world where lawyers may be involved like us in building applications that are not meant to be part of a practice of law. They're explicitly meant as a non-law practice service delivery mode. And that's a challenging world of its own. Some bar associations would claim it's unauthorized practice. Some First Amendment absolutists like me would say, no, this is, this is a freedom of expression thing. And there, the rules are not so much what are the ethical constraints, but what's, what's really morally proper? What's, 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 what's good for the world? For us to do to help people get legal needs solved 
where there's not necessarily confidentiality or the usual you know, structure of a, of a professional relationship. And I, I agree with everything that Mark just said. And I think that the other side that you maybe were hinting at, Dan, is should lawyers be using these tools and if lawyers that aren't using them, are they doing an ethical disservice to their clients by not gaining the efficiencies that can come from technology? I, I think that's a very interesting question. I think every lawyer should be considering if there's a way that their client could, could save their billable time by entering information on a form on their own, and that's what the lawyer is getting paid hundreds of dollars an hour to do instead, I think that they, they probably should be doing that. Yeah, I'm starting to see more discussion about that question, right? Is that the, the duty of competence then under Rule 1.1 and then tying it to Rule 1.5 and asking, uh, you know, if technology tools are available, that you could do something much more efficiently. And then, which goes directly to what you guys are, are talking about, the substantive quality of the tools, right? I think sometimes we focus just on efficiency, but these tools can also improve quality and outcomes. Then, you know, would it be unreasonable to do it in the manual way and, exp- and, and charge your client for that? Exactly. I mean, I've, I've had many, many experiences where I'll go into a law firm that's been practicing in a certain area for a long time, you know, developing municipal finance documentation, for instance, and they'll hand us a, a collection of documents they've, they've historically generated saying, hey, use these as examples and we'll find errors. We'll find problems where the wrong, the wrong declaration is attached or the wrong you know, municipality is named in a form. And so in those situations, substantive software can often you know, reduce the errors and, and highly improve quality. Uh, so I think that's where you get into this question of it's, it's not really a matter of so much only of efficiency, but of quality assurance and deployed properly, these tools can improve quality assurance, but they can also introduce errors that maybe get ignored. Can you talk just uh, briefly about kind of like best practices? I'm thinking even like uh, in, in a classroom setting, but anyone developing them, like how might you describe the quality assurance and the, the testing process? What would be like maybe just uh, uh, some examples of the kind of things you think you're, you're kind of done building the product? Now, ideally, you've had users engaged the whole time. But what sort of quality assurance or testing might you suggest that a developer would go through to, to ensure that we have high quality from the substantive side? So I think that the more you can kind of isolate these legal rules and test them against facts, that's something you can automate if you've done it correctly. So you, you build um, like a, a rule in Python or in any platform, and you can just run different scenarios at it and see, does it give the output that it's supposed to? That's one strategy. And that can be um, something that you're automating on the command line. It can be automation of a web browser. There's lots of tools that do that. And almost all of the platforms I mentioned do work on the web. There's really no excuse to not do that kind of automated testing. Uh, at the same time, that's not going to capture everything. It's only going to capture the things that you've thought of. So there's you have to do manual walkthroughs of your application, take different paths. And then you have to recognize the limits of that. Even when you've thrown hundreds of, of testers at your application, they're not going to find all of the bugs. So you have to make sure there's a feedback loop at the end where your, your users can come back to you and tell you, this isn't working right. And then you have a mechanism to fix that. Yeah, I think the, the idea is to, is to comprehensively test throughout the process. And as a rule of thumb, allocate at least as much time for testing as for development, if not more. <laughs> and, and just be humble enough to recognize you're never going to find all the errors. So just this, this ethos of testing, confirmation throughout the development process. And once the system is ready to be tested externally, 
throw as much at it as you possibly can. Try to imagine the most creative users out there who can do all kinds of unexpected things and constantly monitor and be ready to, to remediate when you discover problems you, you just hadn't noticed. All right. So those are all some really good tips on, on kind of how to keep your users engaged and keep t- uh, testing through the process, getting feedback, having uh, avenues for users to give feedback when they, when they encounter problems. So given, given everything that we're, we're talking about, what should we be thinking about? We see the increasing use of technology to deliver legal services. How should we be training law students? And, and there's kind of this debate, should lawyers code, not code, things like that. I mean, I think you guys give an example of, of where lawyers can really be, be integrated in this process of developing these tools. But I mean, what are, what are maybe even some of the other things that, I mean, coding is, is, is that's, that's a really simplistic even just to talk about that. How should we be training law students today for the future? I think to start with, there's no question but law schools need to expose their students to these developing situations of, of technology doing legal work. Whether or not you were, you were involved in learning how to build them, you should know that they exist and that you're going to be exposed to them as an emerging practitioner. Secondly, I think it is, you know, Quinton and I are both very enthusiastic about courses in which students not only are exposed, but are engaged in building, of making applications. And there's nothing, you know, we're not saying that lawyers need to code. Some lawyers will learn by coding. But by having some interaction with the craft of wrestling with software and building these tools, I think law students are well exposed to how they work and how they can fail to work. So those two dimensions, exposure to the software that's happening and some opportunity to be engaged in the process of building and and fixing these things, to me, seem to be absolutely central to current legal education. The only thing I would add is that writing a brief is actually not that different from writing an application, except that you need a, a, a much higher level of rigor. So I think that coding can be a way to help law students learn the law in a way that's really deep and rigorous that really gives them the full picture. You need to understand all the different scenarios in a way that you don't necessarily when, you need to, when you're writing just one legal brief on one topic. Well, we're coming nearly to the end of our time, but we, we've, we've had such a broad ranging discussion. I did want to give each of you kind of a chance just to give some closing thoughts about the importance of thinking about means of improving the substantive quality of legal applications and, and just any, any kind of advice you want to give to our listeners about thinking about how they can contribute to this and, and either this movement generally or, or how they can build better software themselves. And Quentin, you want to start off? I would just encourage people to give this a try. It's, I mean, it's actually a really fun process. That's part of why we're doing this. And, and I think we're bringing in this idea of, of making sure that you do it right. But if you haven't even started trying to build an app, I encourage you to do that. Great, great. Mark? Yeah, I would say that you know the, the, the threshold is lower than it's ever been for folks who want to just dip their toe into this world to do so. There are tools like Community Lawyer and Document nowadays that for very little money can get you into the space of building interactive questionnaires. So if, you, if you're at all interested, go forth and try it. We're in this era, I think, of law where we're going to see increasingly active roles for technology. And if you're a lawyer or a would-be lawyer or a soon-to-be lawyer, uh, there's no excuse for not uh, embracing this, understanding it, and to the extent it, it gets you interested, uh, actually doing it. Well, great. So now before we wrap up, I was hoping that you can each tell our listeners how to follow your work and how to get in contact with you. So sharing your Twitter handle and, and other avenues to, to get connected would be great. Quentin? I'm at 
at Q Stainhouse at Q S T E E N H U I S. Or you can find me on my, my website, which is nonprofit techie, all one word.com. Great. Mark. Yeah. I'm on Twitter at Mark Lauritsen, one word, L A U R I T S E N. And you can also reach me at Mark M E R C at capstonepractice.com. Well, this has been great guys. Uh, I really appreciate the work that you're doing in this space. I hope we'll have some opportunities to collaborate on this. This is really interesting. I, I think it's important work to be thinking about the, the quality of lawyer work, the quality of legal software, the value that's added with these tools. So thank you for, for all that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. This has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. Please take a minute to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Dan Lina. Please follow me, retweet links to this episode, and join the legal innovation and technology discussion online. And join us next time for another edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Dan Linna, signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.